were six, one to three. Therefore, let us move beyond elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. And to faith in God. Instructions about baptisms, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. In God permitting, we will do so. And God permitting, we will do so. And God permitting, we will do so. And God permitting, we will do so. We'll pick it up at verse 2. Paul's writing to the church for the second time and he says, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said it. I've said before, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you'd given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed uh, in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on the account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are, and by this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. I had boasted to him of you, and you've not embarrassed me. Just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting to you about Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you all, is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient and received him with fear and trembling. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. Let's pray together. So, Father, as we come now to your word today, we pray that you'd open our hearts 
and that you'd open our lives. We thank you, Father, that every time we open this book, you, the author of the word of life, come to explain to us what you've written and come to write in our hearts something of your story and your way and your grace. So, Lord, would you speak to us today? Might we know more about you? Might we be moved forward in our journey in you? And might the world see more of you and less of us as we respond to you? So, Holy Spirit, would you just use this time, use this moment for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know about you, one period of history I'm absolutely fascinated by, uh, the moon landings. Now, some of you here may have been alive, and anybody here watch it live when it happened? Yeah, a few people did. What an amazing moment of history. Number one, not, not just that they got there at all, but that you were able to watch it live. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. We've seen this morning, haven't we, how difficult it is for anybody to watch anything live. So, but from the moon, that's absolutely incredible. And I don't know if you've stopped and thought about it, but the more you think about it, the more incredible it is. Now, I'm no scientist, so this is going to be layman's terms, okay? So, so bear with me as I, as I go through this. But as far as I understand it, this Earth doesn't stay still. It goes around the sun. Am I right so far? Excellent. We're, we're traveling around the sun. We're also spinning. So every day we do a full rotation. So it's not like we're just trying to launch a rocket from here somewhere else. We're moving. We're spinning and we're orbiting. And the place that they were going to is hardly static either. The moon also rotates. It's going around. And that is orbiting around us. So the sheer mathematics alone of knowing where and when and how to take off from this planet and land on a rock that's orbiting us is absolutely incredible. Is anybody else buying this? You'd all look a little bit tired this morning. It's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. Uh, how many people here have seen a film called Hidden Figures? Turns out there was a whole bunch of women, black women, which back in the 60s meant that the work and, and life was, was quite difficult for them, that were doing the math, that were solving the problem. And one of them, a lady called Catherine Johnson, was, was really keen uh, and really key in, in solving some of the geometry uh, of all this. Absolute uh, genius. She's written a tremendous book called Reaching for the Moon, where she talks about her faith as well uh, and her passion to go and see this universe that, that God had, uh, had created. Uh, they, they reckon that if her calculations were off by as little as 3 to 5%, the chances are the rocket would have sailed way past its original destination. That if the place and the trajectory and the timing was not perfect, it simply would not have happened at all. Sometimes in life, we, we start out doing things, don't we? We take, we take up a new hobby. I don't know if we've just been through the start of the year together, haven't we, the year to Easter, and uh, that, that can be a time when we're all trying new things and launching out in different things, and sometimes if we don't start well, things can peter off very, very quickly, can't they? In our relationships with people, if often if we don't start well, if we don't meet well, the relationship doesn't really get anywhere. We don't want to be like this, but very often first impressions can be very damaging, very, very damning for us. How we begin is actually very, very important. 
And in the spiritual life, as we seek to say no to self and yes to Jesus, as we seek to grow in him and, and follow his ways, it's important, isn't it, that, that, that we, we find the right path, we find the right way. Because so often, if we start and the trajectory is slightly off, uh, it can lead to big issues later on. I'm amazed how often in this Christian life uh, I can come up against an issue or a problem and actually, as we start to sit down and, and unravel it a little bit and, and, and take it apart, we get led right back to the basics. And there's something that was slightly off kilter. It's a little bit like, I don't know who does all the, the washing and the drying of clothes in your house, but it's a little bit like when you've done all the washing and you pile it up and you've got a pile of washing. And then one of the kids comes along and the item of clothing that they want is like here. And they pull it out from the bottom, and suddenly something that was much too high for a pile of clothes in my house, uh, but, but something that was quite steady becomes unstable. And it's important, isn't it, that we have those elementary things uh, right and in place in our lives. And that's why we're starting a series today looking at Hebrews chapter 6, because the writer there is talking to them, and he's been talking to them for, for six chapters. Uh, and now he comes to this point where he says, we need to leave behind the elementary teachings, the foundational truths about Jesus. And uh, as you look at those verses, there are uh, five things there that he highlights uh, as foundational, as elementary, uh, as essential uh, for our lives. And we're going to be journeying through those over the next couple of weeks. And the one I want to look at very briefly this morning uh, comes right in the middle of those verses. He said, let's be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Not laying again that foundation. So one of the first foundations for us is this whole thing about turning, about repenting. If you want to read a gospel that tells you all about the prophecies of Jesus and how you've fulfilled them. You, you go to Matthew for that. If you're someone who's fascinated by um, details and historical accuracy, you go to Luke. If you like the big themes, you go to John. But Mark's gospel is just this um, frantic run-through of everything that Jesus did. It's so fast-paced. It's just the bare minimum, really, the basics. And uh, we're already in chapter one of Mark into the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't bother telling us about the prophecies or the birth stories or anything like that. We're straight into Jesus' teaching ministry. And after John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So for Mark, one of the first things, one of the first words out of Jesus' mouth is repent, turn. So no wonder the writer of Hebrews tells us this is a, a foundational thing, right? It's, it's really important that we grasp what it is, what Jesus is, is calling us to. I don't know about you, but as I often think about repentance, it can be a difficult subject to think about. It's not something that we like to do often because as human beings, we don't like to admit we've got something wrong. We don't like to stop and explore that that darker part of us, and, and confess it. It's, it's not something that, that we would look forward to. But listen to how Jesus presents it here. First of all, he says, the time has come. Jesus is excited about this, this possibility. The time has come. In Greek, there are two words for time. 
There's chronos, from which we get the word chronology, which is to do with a sequence of events, so when things happen. And then there's this other word, kairos. And kairos is a moment of opportunity. A, a, a time when the, the, the circumstances all fit together, are all right. Uh, a time when you can do something that you could not do at other times. And Jesus is not just talking about the date or the chronology or the older events. He's talking about a kairos moment. There is something in the air, as Jesus says these words. The time has come. This is an invitation. This is an opportunity. The kingdom of God has come near. The way of God, the rule of God, here on the earth, not fully uh, realized yet, but, but drawing near in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, there's something available now. Uh, grace is available now. Healing is available now. Life is available now in all of its fullness because the way of God, the rule, the kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus says, repent. Come into this, come into this life, come into this opportunity, and believe the good news. Now, I don't know about you, but, but phrase like that, it sounds like good news. Just being told to go away and think about all the wrong things I've done and, and admit to them sounds like very bad news. But the gospel, that's literally what gospel means, is, is good news, means that now we can turn. Now, change, and as scary as change is, change is now possible. Healing is now possible. Knowing God in your life is now possible. Repent. Come and be part of this. It literally means to turn, to do a, a, a 180. And so very briefly this morning, I want to look at repentance. I want to look at turning uh, as a foundational truth for us. And there's a couple of myths, I think, that exist about repenting. I don't know if we'll get through them all this morning. I've got one eye on the clock as well. Uh, but I want to look at some of these with us today. Here's myth number one. <clears throat> I need to feel really guilty about something before I can repent. How many of us have, uh, have, have thought that in our lives? I need to feel really guilty. Now, we're going to go into this in a little bit later on, the, the, the link between sorrow and repentance. But fundamentally, repentance is not the emotion. And that's often how we've come to think about it. Repentance is, is the action of turning, not the desire to. It's the decision to do it. And the decision to repent is something that we can all do uh, at any time. There are certain things that we've repented of in our lives quite easily, quite quickly. We don't, don't even think about those. There are other things that, that grieve us deeply that we still carry a, a, a weight for. But waiting to feel guilty is not waiting to repent. Sometimes the emotion comes with the experience, but repentance is, is, is something that stands alone. And I highlight that today because I've known of people uh, in their Christian life, I've known of people in ministry who've deliberately waited to become a Christian until they felt they'd repented enough. Well, that's not what Jesus is, is talking about here. It's not the desire, it's, it's the decision. It's not the emotion, it's, it's the action. Turn uh, and, and, and enter into life. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I wanted to read that passage earlier from Corinthians. 
Because Paul is actually finishing off a story for us. If you know the, the New Testament well, you'll know that it was Paul that went to Corinth and that planted the church there. And so he's got a great sort of affection for them. And then later on in his ministry, he moves on somewhere else and he hears that there's a whole bunch of things that have crept into the church which are not Christ-like, which are not godly. And so he wants to write to them to, to correct that. So 1 Corinthians, you get this picture of a really messy church, real, all, all kinds of issues. I won't go into them now. But he's got to write to them and say, this can't be in Jesus' church. You cannot let it stand. You've got to sort it out. So 2 Corinthians then actually gives us the rest of that story. How did the church respond to a letter like that from Paul? Well, it seems like in places the church responded really, really well. And he, at one point, he, he draws a distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see now that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. When we've done something wrong, and we know that we've done something wrong. There's a sense of guilt that we carry, isn't there? When somebody else discovers what we've done wrong, there's a sense of, of shame that we carry. Someone knows now. And sometimes we can feel sorry about what's happened, but if we're honest, what we really feel sorry about is that we were caught. That somebody else now knows something about us that we would rather they didn't know. It's possible to feel worldly sorrow about something. And for some people, that can lead to a, a whole sort of pattern of behavior. It can lead to whole seasons of life where there's this sense of, of shame, a sense of dread, uh, a sense of, of, of gloom. And Paul's really clear here, worldly sorrow brings death. It's really hard when you're living with that horrible sense of, I shouldn't have done that. People know what I've done. It's really hard to produce change. But godly sorrow, he says, leads us somewhere. It never exists in its own right. You know, it's a little bit like when um, somebody's career is on the up and all the newspapers love them and we have these great stories about them and then they get famous. And then the, the media switches its tone, doesn't it, and looks for negative stories about them and wants to drag them down again. And sometimes there's that sense in our lives of, are we going up or are we going down? It's constantly up or down. And that, that worldly sorrow that we carry, that worldly sorrow that we can get locked in. There's some words that, that Paul talks about here. He says, my letter may have hurt you. It wasn't easy to hear. It wasn't easy to act on. But at the end, he says, because you became sorrowful as God intended, you were not harmed in any way by us. So there are times when we need to hear things that might be hurtful, but they are not intended to be harmful. Quite the opposite. It's a little bit like, you know, as parents, when you've got a child and you're trying to get some cow pollen to them and they don't want to take it, but you know they need it. Some things might be hurtful, but they're not intended to be harmful. They're intended to lead us somewhere, to lead us to salvation. 
that's the first point, the first myth, that we need to feel really guilty before we can repent. Another myth. All I need to do is repent, and then everything will be okay. There's a guy called uh, John Altberg, whose uh, writings I love, his books I love. And, uh, he once wrote a book, uh, a, a chapter of honest prayers. And he says that one thing that he's painfully not very good at is confession, uh, is admitting to things. And he says that very often what happens is that what we're asking God to do is to help us when we repent, not to feel so bad about doing it in order that we can do it again and come back and then pray, God, help me to not feel so bad about the fact that I did it. He says that is not the way to repent. The truth is that repentance is not just a prayer, is it? It's not just words. It, it's an attitude. Uh, the, the word that um, Jesus uses is called metanoia. Meta as in change, as in metamorphosis, and noia as in mind. Repentance is a, is a change of mind, a change of thinking uh, about something. Uh, Paul talks about what, what happened as they felt this godly sorrow. See what it has produced in you. Earnestness, uh, eagerness, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness. And it leads to innocence. It, it's a productive thing. You know, anybody that, that you know, responds to the grace of Jesus and thinks that it gives them a license to keep on sinning because they can be forgiven has not grasped the cost of what Jesus has done for us. I remember a number of years ago uh, reading a book, and there's many, like many books, there's much of the book that I've forgotten, but there was one phrase that really lives with me, and it's, grace might be free, but it is not cheap. And it's true, isn't it? That if I come to Jesus just to get some... Um, relief from feeling bad about something, and then just go and do it again. I'm somehow cheapening the grace of God. It might be free at the cross, but it, it is not cheap. And to fully understand the price that has been paid for us is to want to live and, and to grow and to serve God. John the Baptist, who we mentioned earlier, was once preaching, and his message was all about repentance. He begins his ministry in the same way that Jesus does, repent and believe the good news. And he even had a, a, a baptism for repentance. And at one point, he puts it this way, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So we repent, we turn back to God, we confess it, we invite his forgiveness again. But out of that, there's meant to be a fruitfulness. Something is meant to be produced from that. I love the words of Paul as he writes to the church for the first time in Corinth. And he's really laying out who he is. He says, I'm the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's who Paul was. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. What Paul is really writing about there is the grace effect. And in all of our lives, as we respond to the graciousness of Jesus, there should be a grace effect. Something is being produced. I'm beginning to look less and less like the old me and more and more like the new me. I'm being made in the likeness 
of the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me, the grace effect. See, if God just turned up one day in our lives and said to us, you can't, you can't live like that, you've got to live like Jesus, we'd, we'd all walk away. But because this Jesus is the one who has paid the price for us, because we are not our own, because we've been bought at a price, therefore we honor God with our bodies. It's, it's the grace effect. Myth number three, repentance is a one-off deal. I don't know if I need to say any more about that, actually. I might just, I might just do it. The, um, we used to watch a film with the kids when we were younger, a Veggie Tales, uh, based on the life of, of Jonah. If you've not seen it, it is profoundly theologically brilliant, genuinely. Uh, and there's one point in it when Jonah is in the belly of the whale, uh, and he's crying out to God, and suddenly his, his heart starts to turn and hope starts to be born. And they start to sing a song, Our God is a God of second chances. And there's a whole angel sort of gospel choir that come. I don't think that's in the Bible. But it's, you know, it's, it's the moment. It's, it's, it's the moment that grace happens in Jonah's heart and in Jonah's life. And I remember we were watching it with the kids. And one day, one of the kids sort of said, God isn't just a God of second chances. He's a God of thirds and fourths. Go on, couldn't you? And praise God he is. Praise God he is. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the first things we learn about Jesus, he buzzes, he brims with grace. He's full of it. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. And I know there are things that we wish were not part of our present. We wish were only part of our past. But come to Jesus. And I know there are things that we have sincerely repented of in our past. And then we do them again, and we wonder... Was it real when I repented? Did I really want to turn? Maybe for some of us here today, we, we've lived with an issue, a habit, a problem, a thought for so long. We've, we've wondered, does this grace even apply to me anymore? Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. It's not a one-off deal. And then finally, myth number four. God wants me to be constantly remorseful and repentant. I remember reading a book about a young boy who went to church one Sunday for the first time. And as he sat there, uh, they were asked to stand and to read a prayer. And the prayer was a very uh, detailed confession. And so as he stood there, he read about all the ways that he'd sinned against God and heaven and earth. And he confessed his sins to them and received forgiveness. And he thought it was brilliant. So it was great. Went home, had lunch, said to his mum and dad, I'm going to go back there tonight. So he went there for their evening service. I think it's called Evening Song, and Even Song. And he sat in the pews, and then they said to him, right, we're going to stand and read a prayer together. And it was a confession. And it was the same confession. And so he stood there and read about all the ways he'd sinned against God and heaven and earth. And in this book he writes, and he said, I don't think I had that afternoon, actually. I think I'd stayed, stayed pretty good that afternoon. And sometimes we get locked in patterns, don't we? 
I'm thinking that what God really wants is for us to feel remorse and regret. But I don't think that's why Jesus came and stood on the shores of Galilee and said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Come and live a life of, not regret, not remorse, a life of freedom, a life of peace, a life of, uh, of growth. Godly sorrow brings repentance, leads to salvation, leaves no regret. You and I have a, a choice today. We can either sit in worldly sorrow or we can bring it to God in repentance. Ask him to show us just a glimpse of how he feels about it. And be led to salvation, be led to freedom. Be left with no regret. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives, that who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. One of the ways in which the devil is described in the Scriptures is the accuser. He loves to accuse you. He loves to bring up the past. And he'll do it at just the right time. Just when you thought you were doing well. Just when you were going to step out. Just at the right time. But weren't you? But didn't you? If they knew. Another place in the New Testament calls it the fiery darts of the evil one. Fires these things at us constantly. It's so important that we clothe our minds, we close our, our, our lives with what God says of us. There is therefore now no condemnation. And you could try and live your whole life as perfectly as you could and never gain those words. Or you can come to the cross and have them free. This is foundational. And unless we get it, unless it's cemented in place, we have all these strange relationships with God or understandings or ways. So we're going to pray together this morning. And I just want to invite you, wherever you are with God, just to think for a moment about how you think about yourself. How you think about how God feels about you. Because if it's not based on this, it'll lead you to some pretty strange places.